Welcome to the Saltier Politics Podcast. I'm Julia Roginski, along with Emily, and we have Matt Katz, the immigration reporter for WNYC and NPR, in the studio with us today. Emily, uh, we had a great talk with Matt, and the thing that surprised me most about this conversation, we veered a little bit off the rails in a great way, is that Matt, who's this really accomplished immigration reporter, started out writing a dating column. He was sort of the Carrie Bradshaw of suburban New Jersey, turns out. Um, and we delve a little bit into that on the podcast as well. I know. I I was surprised by a lot. And I learned not only about Matt and being the first Carrie Bradshaw, but also his New Jersey politics stuff, which you and him really talked a lot about. Yeah, which we, was... we kind of geeked out on the Chris Christie stuff a little bit because he wrote a book about Chris Christie, um, which we'll delve into as well. Um, but I'll, it was great to talk to somebody who's actually an expert in the, migra- in the immigration field and being able to sort of separate... Uh, the myth from the reality of what's going on with this caravan, what's going on with family separations, what's going on at the border by somebody and with somebody who actually covers this, has visited some of these places, and certainly has an expert opinion, and not an opinion, expert view on what's going on, um, which is very different from a lot of the things that you see and hear in media these days. Before also, I would like to say that he did make you drink a brown alcohol. We had to make Manhattans for this, and that was an experience in itself. That's true, because I have actually not had a sip of any brown alcohol since I was 16 years old and got into a a very unfortunate drinking contest with um, uh, somebody who's probably around 200 pounds back in high school. That guy now is a pretty high up guy at the Justice Department, so I'll leave his name out of the equation other than to say, kids, don't ever, ever, ever accept a challenge to drink as many shots of Old Crow as you can. You'll end up like me, basically hating bourbon, rye, and whiskey for the rest of your life. Yep, so pretty much when he sent the email saying his favorite drink is a Manhattan, I knew we were in for quite a ride, and I think uh, the listeners will be too. Yeah, I womaned up. I had a few sips. I d- didn't pass out. It was, it was okay. Anyway, we're coming up with Matt Katz. Looking forward to that discussion with him. Matt Katz, welcome to <laughs> Saltier Politics. Full disclosure, we did spill a Manhattan before this. That's who's, true. Who's we? Well, I, I Julie spilled a Manhattan. It's actually as a protest against all bourbon, rye, and whiskey type products. But unfortunately, um, I somebody just made me a second one. So welcome, Matt Katz. Thank you very much. Thank guys. you so much, Matt Katz, an immigration reporter for WNYC here in New York and NPR nationally. Also, author. American governor. American governor. Thank Chris you. Chris Christie's bridge, bridge to, to redemption. redemption. Matt, thank you so much for coming. Before we get into Chris Christie and his future, if he has one, um, I want to talk about immigration because it is a week or less than a week before the election, mm-hmm. and it seems like the president has decided that it's going to come down to getting out his base, and the way he thinks he's going to get the base out is to talk about this caravan of disease and smallpox-infested foreigners who are descending upon our southern border. Tell us, first and foremost, where this caravan is. My understanding is it's about a 1,000 miles away, and they're walking. Right. Uh, Less than a week out from the election, it is the equivalent of uh, South Florida to New York, and they're all walking. Right. So it's going to be many weeks for them to make it to the U.S. border, and once they do, their numbers will likely have dwindled. We've seen this caravan type of thing before, right? Oh, sure. They, they're periodically caravans. They, they travel in caravans for safety. It's, it's a typical way that uh, people from the Northern Triangle of Central America will, will come, up to the, come up to the border. So why don't you tell people, because I'm not sure people have a clear understanding of who 
is in this caravan? It's who are these people, and, and what what's the demographic? Is it families? Is it ISIS, as Donald Trump and some of his supporters claim? Is it people fleeing rape and poverty and murder, um, as he said in the Triangle? Right. Um, yeah, that, I mean, I, I have not I have not been down there, but from right. all reporting, there are no Middle Easterners. It is all Central Americans. Um, the, the, the president says that there could be Middle Easterners in there, as do other Republicans. Um, there are children. Uh, a baby was born on the, on, uh, along the caravan as it was coming up. Um, there's also obviously a lot of young men, but it is impossible to know what their criminal record would be or their affiliation with MS-13 if such a thing might exist. There's no way the president would have any idea about that. I mean, generally speaking, the people that are fleeing uh, Central America are doing so because of uh, extortion, because of gangs that run large swaths of uh, those countries, and they're fleeing because of uh, some of it's purely economic. They're looking for opportunity. Um, and uh, once they get into the country, uh, statistics show that immigrants are not more likely to be criminals than the um, uh, native-born Americans. But uh, they present a concern for people, so, and that's what and, Republicans are running on. And why, why are they fleeing? I mean, what's, what's their raison d'etre? Why are they leaving their country? I mean, they, there's various reasons, but under, like, inter, but under international asylum law, and uh, they, they can leave because they are, they're leaving because they say they are a persecuted group or are part of a persecuted social class. Um, so some of them are women who have been raped by gang members. Some of them are... Uh, men who's, uh, who have been extorted by gangs and their family members have been killed by gangs and they're fleeing for safety. Um, then there's other economic reasons. They, they can't find work and they have to support their family and they have relatives in the United States and they've been told they can have opportunity here. So those, those, those are the reasons. And the, I mean, I've spoken to um, uh, people who have been, uh, there aren't protections for gay people and traditionally we have in the, in the U.S. admitted uh, gays under asylum law, and there are certainly people who are leaving because they're not protected. They're either persecuted because of their homosexuality, or they've been um, uh, they're persecuted and they're not protected by the government. Like the police, I've been told, don't investigate any sort of hate crime against gay people. Um, so those are those are the various reasons. But you know, there's people also that sometimes come up from the southern border, and we don't know if there's any in the caravan now, um, who are from elsewhere. I mean, I interviewed a guy who is from Eritrea, and he uh, had been a journalist, and he wrote something that got himself in trouble, and he flew to um, two other African countries, couldn't find work, ended up flying to Brazil, and then he made his way all the way up from Brazil, all the way through Central America to the U.S.-Mexico border, and then found himself detained in New Jersey. They sent him over to New Jersey to be detained. So you do get other people from elsewhere around the world who come up via the southern border. Um, but there's no indication that there's ISIS people in this caravan right now. So 15,000 troops is just an appropriate response, naturally, to people fleeing for their lives. It, it's unclear what these troops can really even do. I mean, these are not people who are, like, looking to uh, fight anybody. In fact, they are mostly looking to find an American official so they can declare asylum because under U.S. and international law, uh, if someone comes up to a, a U.S. official, border official, and says, I'm, I'm here to declare asylum, they pass a brief interview process that indicates they have a credible fear, and then they're allowed to stay in the country pending um, a, a full immigration hearing and investigation. Um, so they're, they're not looking to invade. They are just looking to come in and declare, come to the border and declare asylum, which 
is supposed to be technically legal. What's interesting to me about all of this is I think there's some uh, fear among the president's supporters. This is some sort of White Walker, Game of Thrones, let's storm the wall um, and, and just overwhelm humanity here in the States. But in reality, I think from previous caravans, isn't it something like 90% of the people will not reach the border and of the mm. people who do, that 90% of them will be deported back, right? I mean, it's sure. a very small amount that's going to end up staying here. And well, getting asylum, even if they merit it. Right, and they're not going to, and and the numbers that could stay here and then go through the lengthy process to become citizens and then register to vote as Democrats, which is also the concern right. that they're coming in to vote as Democrats and tip elections. Um, that that's also would be very far off as well. And, and by the time they do, I think Barron Trump might be running for president because it's, right. it's certainly it's certainly not going to happen any time <laughs> that Donald Trump in twenty twenty be running for reelection. Right. So. Um, Aside from that, it just seems to me that how did it happen that immigration has become such a major issue? And, and you did a very interesting story I saw um, using New Jersey as an example mm -hmm. of, of Democrats in New Jersey, not in swing, swing districts, not really talking about immigration, but Republicans in swing districts really doubling yeah. down on it. How did it become such an issue to avoid for Democrats? I get for Republicans why it's such an issue. The president has talked about it nonstop, and it's become something that's really galvanizing the base. But how is it that Democrats have not been able to explain their position on this in, a, in an effective way politically? It's unclear if they, if they really have a position. I mean, uh, traditionally, Democrats have not necessarily been any more pro-immigrants um, than, than Republicans. So the law currently that Trump is mostly, um, is mostly enforcing to, to a certain degree. I mean, if you've com committed a crime and you're not a citizen and you, you got uh, possession of cocaine, let's say 15 years ago, but you're a legal permanent resident, you have your papers, you can be now arrested. That, that, that you're allowed to, that, that's allowed to happen. Um, Trump is enforcing, no one ever actually went after those people, uh, but now Trump is going after those people. Those laws were passed by Democratic Congresses. I mean, we didn't, uh, in 19, the, the law in 1996 was signed by Bill Clinton by, with the Republican Congress. But that law signed by Bill Clinton essentially created the immigration detention system where there's several hundreds of thousands of immigrants in right now. We didn't used to detain immigrants. The whole idea of criminalizing not having your documents was uh, due to a law signed by Bill Clinton. Um, then you, you, the, the years go on, the immigration system gets more confusing, murkier, um, more and more undocumented people living in the country. And um, uh, new Americans and immigrants watch as Democrats didn't really do anything to, uh, to, to fix it. Um, they watched as Obama had increased deportations to a, to a significant degree. And, this see, and, then, and then there's now, and you would think and it seems that given the overheated rhetoric about immigrants, the, the, the racism that comes out of the White House about immigrants, that Democrats would, would stick up for uh, this population. And you see some of it. You see the, you know, family separation. The Democrats you know, held, held some rallies about that. Um, but as we get closer to the midterms, it is clearly evident that Democratic support for immigrants is a mile wide and an inch deep. It, it does not go very far. So you have candidates running in swing districts in New Jersey and elsewhere in the country who don't even list immigration on their websites. And what's so crazy about that is this is clearly the most talked about controversial issue in America because the president has, has made it so. Um, and the, the, the ways he's changed uh, the law in the immigration realm is more significant than any other ways he's changed law in America. Uh, but the D Democrats are, they, you know, Mikey Sherrill is one candidate 
who's running for Congress in a swing district in New Jersey. She's a Democrat, um, and she's uh, filling a seat that was held by a Republican in a, in a district that Trump barely won. She does not uh, talk about immigration, doesn't use the word immigration on her website, doesn't even mention dreamers. I mean, these were broad public support for dreamers, kids who were brought into the country as kids by their parents. Uh, they've never committed a crime. They're going to college. Uh, Obama created a pathway towards for, for citizenship for them, and, Obama, and, and Trump took it away. And you don't hear Democratic candidates running on this issue or forcing their Republican opponents to say anything about it. And then that allows their Republican opponents to then um, label them by, be, by being open borders Democrats or abolish ICE Democrats. And immigrant activists and uh, new Americans are very upset by this. They don't understand why they can't get a political party uh, to stick up for them in any way. Even if, you know, if there's a family separation issue, they say the right things, but you know, what there's still kids separated from their parents, but Democratic candidates are not talking you, about you it. You raise a good point. I remember about six weeks, two months ago, it's all anybody talked about was family separation and, and everybody was trying to get down to the border to, to see these little kids who literally had to go represent themselves in court, right. two-year-old not speaking a word of English and we're speaking any language for that matter at that age. Right. Um, and then it seems like that kind of died down and if you're Donald Trump, why not continue the policy? Eventually, people will lose interest, and eventually you could still do what you want to do. People are still separated, are, are they not? I mean, there are kids there, still in there, detention. There are people still separated, kids still um, in, in foster care while their parents are in detention. They have not connected with their parents yet. Um, there's a tent city um, uh, the, that can house more than 3,500 kids off the border. That's for kids who come over without their parents. Um, that's where they would go, but it could also be used whenever they want to continue this policy of, of separating uh, asylum seeker children from their parents at the border. Um, they could certainly do that again. Uh, Congress has not done anything to stop it. And it's, it, it, you know, operatives apparently, Democratic operatives are apparently telling Democratic candidates that voters really just care about health care and taxes and the economy, and that's what they should be running on and not immigration. And Democratic candidates are also going for that you know, center, uh, the, the, this white center, undecided voter who will not be sympathetic to the immigrants' cause and therefore don't talk about it, don't seem too pro-immigrant. Where others, the immigrant activists say there's this whole swath of younger people, um, of people of color on the left who are not voting because they think there's no difference between the parties. And it's unclear why anybody would think a candidate who doesn't talk about uh, immigration going into their election would actually talk about immigration or, or you know, sponsor any legislation about immigration once they're in Congress. This is, it just, it baffles me because, okay, the Republicans are taking the fear angle. I just don't see why more Democrats are going for the pathos, putting, you know, this is a mom and a child. Every mm -hmm. mother-child relationship transcends everything. It transcends party politics. So I just don't understand, and maybe you guys can elaborate for me, why I just don't see the Democrats just latch onto the Republicans got the fear. Why don't Dems go pathos and just mom and child being ripped apart? Well, Matt and I actually talked about this, I think, a few days yeah. ago. But um, I think primarily, and it's a shame, and let me just distance myself from, from what I'm about to say because I don't believe it um, personally. But I think there is a sense, potentially, as Matt pointed out, among Democratic operatives or some Democratic operatives, not me, um, that these are not voters, that people who vote think about this hypothetically is a, is a bad thing and a shame, but it's not their kids being taken away and separated. 
And when you contrast that with things that really do affect voters directly, like the Affordable Care Act being repealed or taxes being raised on the middle class or the lower class, um, working class voters, that's something that tangentially, immigration I should say, something that tangentially affects voters because by nature they are not immigrants or uh, they have the right to vote, um, or if they're immigrants, they're, they're citizens now. But things like healthcare and things like taxes do very viscerally affect um, people. I, look, I, I say this as somebody who was an immigrant and was separated from my family at a very young age, not to see them again for a decade. Um, the psychological toll that I think this kind of behavior takes on children, regardless of where those children end up growing up, they could all be deported back to Guatemala or Mexico or wherever they're coming from, or some of them can stay here, but I think the psychological toll, and take it from me as somebody who, who went through this, not in, not in a detention without any family, but being taken away from my primary caregivers at the age of six um, for a decade, I will tell you, we are doing a massive disservice to these kids, and not just for the next few years, but really for the rest of their lives. That's my view. But fear doesn't motivates people to the polls of more course. than love does, right? No question so, about so it. So that's why you, that's why this is seen as a motivating issue for Republicans and the counter to it, the pathos is not. So you don't it, it seems to me that for every uh, commercial like the MS13 commercial that that Trump tweeted about today uh, with showing a MS13 a guy charged as an MS13 member um, for every one of those, you could see a counter from the Democrats of showing like the impact of family separation and, and the importance of reunifying families. Um, but you don't see that. I haven't seen any Democratic candidate anywhere in the country do a family separation ad. Have you? No, which is amazing, considering that six weeks and two months ago, it literally drove the conversation on both sides. Yes. Um, and to say that Trump has very effectively, I think, continued that narrative on his terms, and Democrats have completely walked away from the narrative that they were talking about, right. um, to me is morally seeming to me like an abandonment of, first of all, these children who deserve much better. And for anybody listening um, who's going to suddenly say, well, you know, they deserve it, they came here illegally, as Matt pointed out, they are coming here to get asylum. Mm -hmm. And the only way to do that is by presenting yourself at the border. Right. Um, also their children, and I think there's something about the sins of the father not being passed along to the, to the sons and the daughters, but um, there's a lot to be said for the fact that um, I think the Democratic Party is, is doing a massive disservice to them. I mean, there's just a, a family separation is one of these issues where Democrats haven't talked about. I mean, refugee totals, refugee numbers are down to the lowest since right. the refugee program, the modern refugee program started in 1980. I mean, minuscule numbers. There were more people, refugees admitted after 2000, after 9-11 than there are now. Um, refugees are people who actually apply while they're abroad to win the equivalent of asylum um, in the country. And they're more vetted than any other immigrants. So they're down, That those numbers are have been slashed. Uh, there's temporary protected status for people from certain countries that suffered natural disasters and other calamities. That's been... Um, eliminated, although it's all tied up in the courts. The Muslim ban is basically still in effect. They just added a non-Muslim country to it, but it's still it's still almost impossible to get here in any capacity if you're from a, a Iran, for example. Um, th there have been uh, DACA, the Dreamers. They are left in a lurch, unclear what's going on with them. Um, there, there have been so many immigration policies that have been radically altered and there's, they are not a talking point at all. And when you hear Democrats talk about it, and this is what pisses off immigration activists more than anything, they will, the first thing they say is we need secure borders. 
And that is considered an absolute red herring because most of the undocumented people in America just overstay their visas. They're already here. They're, already, they're not like sneaking in. The borders are already strong. Also, there's never been a terrorist attack committed in the country by anybody who came in over the southern border. The only terrorist attack was committed by someone who came in from the northern border. And legally, I might add. I mean, they, they came in absolutely legally. Is there any Western country that has taken fewer refugees per capita than, than we have since the Syrian crisis began? Uh, I mean, <clears throat> per capita, that's a great question. I mean, there's there's major economies that don't, not, not Western, like Japan, right. hardly takes any refugees. Right. Um, but they compensate by giving the, the UN refugee program a ton of money. Uh, but their rhetoric is actually very interesting. I mean, they say they don't want to, um, they're a homogenous society, and they say straight up, they just don't want any outsiders to change their culture and their ethnicity. Uh, and that, that, that's really the kind of the, the argument that now we're starting to hear here, uh, even though it's a, obviously a much more uh, heterogeneous population. But so, 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 you know, it's not like we're the argument. It's tough to make the argument that we're suddenly the most morally bankrupt country uh, on Earth. There are certainly other countries that do less even now uh, for the stranger um, that have the capacity to do more. Um, but. Obviously, what we're experiencing in, in America is also similar to what's going on elsewhere. I mean, there's issues all over Europe in terms of um, pushback against politicians who wanted to open their borders to, uh, to some refugees. You're seeing that in Germany, you're seeing the, and you're seeing the pushback and with the rise of uh, the far right in, in Europe as well. So this is a worldwide phenomenon. I mean, there, there's this massive migration of people all over the globe now, more than we've ever seen in human history because of... Uh, just the nature of how easy it is to to move, right? And connectivity, and and war, and uh, natural you know natural disasters. So there's movement of people. There's 67 million people displaced around the country, uh, around, around the world. So this is a and it's only going to grow and increase. So how countries deal with their borders and how they deal with you know accepting immigrants and and judging whether an immigrant deserves to be in their country is really I think going to be the the story of our of our time and the story of the next generation. We are going to move on to your book because my favorite topic of all time, Chris Christie, is on the table. But before we do that, um, tell people the one very interesting thing that they may not know about you because I was kind of surprised when oh, I heard were it. Were you surprised? I was a little surprised. Uh, I had a syndicated, nationally syndicated dating column for several years. For who? So I was a reporter at the Courier Post in South Jersey, right. and I it was for them. And then the, the Gannett, our the, the parent company, newspaper company, syndicated it to first a few newspapers in New Jersey, and then all over the country to such metropolises as Battle Creek, Michigan. So what qualified you, other than the <laughs> fact that you're awesome and you're happily married, but what yeah. qualified you to talk to, to give to give women like me and Emily? I was not Dating giving advice. advice. I was oh, not giving advice. Okay. In fact, somewhat of the opposite. I was uh, I was writing a it was a first person column about my own dating experiences and, and foibles. So this you is before you dated Carrie right? Bradshaw. When the, <laughs> yeah. the the people even though I lived in a city, they would call it a sex in the, and my newspaper was in the suburbs. So there was it was it was often joked that it was sex in the suburbs. And then when uh, when I eventually got married, the New York Times did a little video on their you know their right. vows thing, and they played of me and my wife, and they played the Sex and the City music. So did your wife know this when she started dating you? Was yes. this was this like a draw for her that she was going to finally tame the guy that was doing the column? <laughs> I don't know if it was. 
you know, there were these, uh, I don't think it was a draw, but I feel like it did make me seem a little, I was a little bit unique, did, I think. Did you I had a billboard. Wow. And we were friends first. And she was, a billboard in South, I had three billboards in South. Amazing. Did you have one on a bus? <laughs> did you watch it? They were, they were right. <laughs> Um, it, was, it said the billboard, the name of the batch, the name of the column was called the bachelor pad. The, 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 the billboard said, uh, um, get a date with Matt Katz, read the bachelor pad on Tuesdays. But so, so in the beginning and for most of it, it was, uh, I'd go to dating events. I joined weird, like dating websites. I had an imaginary girlfriend. Uh, there was a website called imaginarygirlfriend.com and I paid 30 bucks and I had an imaginary girlfriend in Saipan. And, which is like in the Pacific, and we used to like correspond, and I wrote about that a bunch. And then it turned out, this is the good twist, she was a dating columnist in Saipan, and then wow. she wrote, and then I wrote about that. This sounds like a really bad rom-com where the two of you should end up together. <laughs> right. Somebody sent me a check in the mail for $100 so I could, because I wrote about how I couldn't afford the $2,000 plane ticket to, <laughs> to meet her. That's oh my cool. gosh. I did not cash it, but I put it in my cubicle. All right, let's talk about Chris Christie, which is somewhat as interesting, but not quite. Um, you wrote this book about Chris Christie, and you wrote it while he was running for president, um, or at least, I guess, while he was gearing up to run for president. And I think at the time, was seen as a, as a really as a front runner um, to, to potentially one of the front runners to be um, the Republican nominee. Bridgegate happened. Um, I think he was still in fairly good shape mm -hmm. even after Bridgegate happened. But then Donald Trump happened. And my right. question for you, somebody who knows Chris Christie, I think better than anybody else, is did Donald Trump kind of out Christie Christie? Was, was Christie's whole um, persona kind of a much more downplayed Trump? Did Trump take that space that Christie yes. otherwise would have occupied? Uh, absolutely. I mean, yeah, he, I mean, Bridgegate aside, Bridgegate might have given, oh, you know, Trump had said that he wouldn't have run at one point. I mean, you can't necessarily... Right. believe everything he says but I mean he had said at one point he wouldn't have run if it wasn't for Bridgegate um, so obviously and that hurt him in the long run there were also other uh, lower level scandals that were going on in New Jersey that started to bubble up as he was starting to run for president but he politically he just had no space to run after this guy came in because Christie's whole niche was he just says he said whatever was on his mind he gives it to you straight he's not gonna you know gloss over stuff and then when you're like then dealing with Trump it's a whole other level of that so whatever Trump Christie would say it would pale in comparison to Trump and then Trump just filled the room there was no other avenue for him and it happened and then you know it was interesting I thought of this when you were talking about immigration and how the the party had shifted I mean Christie when he was governor won 51% of the Hispanic vote when he ran for re-election and part of the reason was is he allowed undocumented uh, kids to get to, to go to in-state colleges to, to get in-state tuition dreamers which is like a remarkable thing for a Republican and he was going to run as this sort of big tent Republican he was going to run as the guy who had a, he had appointed a, a Muslim judge in New Jersey and then was criticized for it on the right for appointing a guy who was going to implement Sharia law and then he went after those critics and said you're I'm sick and tired of dealing with the crazies and and then he runs for president Trump like takes up all the space, he can't like figure out his lane, and he ends up changing his positions, really. I mean, he then said that Syrian refugees, even two-year-old orphan children, should be banned from coming into the country. He changed while he was still governor and running, he pulled New Jersey out of the refugee resettlement business. So 
New Jersey would have no role in, in resettling refugees. He tried to like out Trump Trump, and obviously that didn't work either. He just became less and less popular in New Jersey. You know, I'm gonna tell you um, a story from 2012, and you tell me whether you think this makes sense or not. The story is true, but tell me if you, if you agree with the analysis. Um, so election night 2012, I am sitting in the Fox green room, and if you remember, that was the night that um, Megyn Kelly did her famous walk to the brain room because Karl Rove was freaking out on air that Ohio had come in for, or Fox had declared Ohio coming in for Obama and then Rove disputed it. So as that's going on, waiting in the green room to go on are um, Tucker Carlson, um, Laura Ingram, neither of whom had primetime shows at Fox back then, and me. And um, as soon as it became apparent that Chris Christie won the election, excuse me, that Barack Obama won the election, um, Laura Ingram or Tucker Carlson, I forgot which one, said this is due in large part to Chris Christie. Mm. And I said, that's strange. Um, I'm from New Jersey. I, I don't know what Chris Christie had to do with this. And they were basically saying, I can't remember which one it was, but they were basically saying that it's because Christie hugged, which he actually had not, but had in their mind, and right. in their minds a lot of people hugged Barack Obama right after Sandy, and he didn't need to do that, and he didn't need to cozy up to President Obama at the time um, and that that had cost Mitt Romney the election because suddenly Obama looked like a leader and a bipartisan leader at a time of crisis, which Sandy was, and which happened you know, a, a few weeks before not, the election. Not even. It was like, uh, it was a week. Right. So uh, at that point, something that had never occurred to me as a Northeast liberal, um, mm. but certainly occurred to them that Christie was done with the base. And it wasn't because of Bridgegate, which came later, it wasn't because of all the things that you mentioned, whether it was the, the Muslim judge or the, um, the, the DACA college yeah, tuition. Yeah. It was simply because he and Obama had gone on this tour of the Jersey Shore and, and I think played darts or something at the Jersey Shore. Right, right. And they seemed to be cozying up to each other and, and Republicans truly believed that that cost Romney the election, which I, f I completely and profoundly disagree with. But do you think that was really the beginning of the end for Chris Christie with the Republican base? I think it, it definitely damaged to him. I, I traveled the country with him after that, and it would get brought up, and he had a good answer for it. Um, I mean, a, something of a bipartisan answer, but a good answer for it. And then he would, you know, insult Obama uh, uh, about other stuff. Uh, but you know, a, after that, a year more than a year after that, the polls still showed either him or Jeb as the front runner for the Republican nomination. So I'm sure it would have dogged him if he had been more successful in the primaries as the primaries went on. Um, but it, it didn't really come up that again, really, because he was never enough of a player in the primaries. So I don't think that's, it was a problem, but I don't, that's not why he, I don't think that's why he did so poorly in the Republican primaries. Why was it? Um, he, he, he had no space because of Trump. And he, uh, the, his, his shtick did not seem like fresh and, and new. And uh, it was a very crowded field. And there was this whiff of corruption. Even if people did not necessarily buy the, the I think the Bridgegate thing was so bad, there was a, he got, that stuff got a ton of coverage. There was other, there were other stories that went on about like, you know, David Sampson, his, his, um, uh, Appointed to the Port Authority. Appointed to the Port Authority, who got made a got a, got himself a flight to his vacation home by United by shaking down United Airlines, and that didn't get a ton of coverage. But for a few days, it was a big story. Um, there was this drumbeat that this Jersey guy was not was dirty, 
And, um, in, and then he didn't have this like kind of angle to run on because of Trump. Well, I want to know when you were messenger the dead to me yeah. uh, thing from Chris Christie, <laughs> because that is just the ideal, like perfect mean girls, but also perfect mob move. It's yes. a nice combination. So he, my, I, my book about him came out in January 2016. Um, I'm still like on the campaign trail with him. He's still like answering my questions while I'm like following him out of a diner or whatever. Um, I wasn't otherwise like talking to him, but I didn't know if he had read the book. I didn't know anything. Um, I didn't hear from his people what he thought. And then uh, February comes around and he loses the New Hampshire primary. Uh, and then he licks his wounds and, you know, comes back to Jersey. And I start going to normal Chris Christie press conferences in New Jersey. And um, he, he doesn't, one goes by, two goes by, he doesn't call on me. He doesn't like, and then I realize he's not even calling any on anybody in my like section. Like he was like just avoiding even making any sort of, eye contact with me whatsoever. Um, and I'm not really sure what's going on. And then April comes around and I run into um, one of his people in the state house in Trenton. And uh, he says, oh, Matt, um, the governor asked me to tell you, uh, tell Matt Katz he's dead to me. Oh, he passed you a note in City Hall. It wasn't even that he told you it was, directly. It was via messenger. did not oh. tell me directly. And I have not uh, spoken to him since. It was two and a half years ago. Well, and I don't know why, and nobody seems to know why. I mean, the book was, um, I, no one, I mean. I read that book. He devoted a lot of time to Bridgegate. I think it's a topic he probably yes. doesn't want to dwell on. Yes. Which brings me to my next question, which is that he's somebody who, as you said, had a taint of corruption about him, um, whether fairly or not. But here he is potentially in line to be the next attorney general. And I keep hearing from a lot of Republicans that there's a possibility, a good possibility, that he could be the nominee. Yeah. How did that happen? I mean, he's never charged with anything, and uh, we have a short attention span in this country, and he was a former federal prosecutor, so he sort of has the right resume to do this kind of thing. Um, he got his Bridgegate lawyer uh, appointed as the FBI director. Chris Ray was Christie's secret right. Bridgegate lawyer, which none of us who followed the trial were aware of until later. He's, he's the one that had Christie's personal cell phone, right, with all yes. the text messages that might, were might, never turned over. Might still have it. We don't right, know where it is. I don't understand with Kushner, though. How, how does... Well, that's yeah, the problem, right? That's the problem. That was why he didn't get the gig in the first place. That was also why he might not might not have become vice presidential, uh, the vice presidential nominee. Uh, yeah, for those who don't know, um, Christie, when he was attorney, excuse me, U.S. attorney in New Jersey, prosecuted Charlie Kushner, who was Jared Kushner, is Jared Kushner's father, um, for a variety of very bizarre crimes that we can get into another day. <laughs> um, yes. And it seems like the Kushners have not forgotten. Right. Um, that Christie had done that. And so I'm curious as to whether that has been patched up. Also a little known fact for a lot of people is that Bill Stepien, the White House political director, who I believe now has been deployed to the 2020 campaign, but Bill Stepien, or is about to be, yeah. um, was Christie's, one of the, his fall guys for Bridgegate, I think, one of the people that Christie fired. Fire, he, yeah, he was one of the yeah. basically three people. Yeah, he fired right after Bridgegate. And now he's a top guy at the White House, and I'm yeah. curious as to what Bill Stepien's reaction would be if Christie were to suddenly get appointed well, as Attorney General. Uh, Chris Christie had at his last Christmas party uh, as governor, which would have been last Christmas a year ago, invited Bill Stepien, and Bill Stepien came. So I think that relationship has been patched it up. patched up. <laughs> Smart of Chris Christie to do, exactly and, and, and right. very generous of Bill Stepien to accept. And Not the Bill Stepien that we all knew, know, but it's that's, interesting, yeah. Huh? And um, supposedly him and Jared have something of a working relationship. Not to say that you know they 
we didn't stab each other in the back if given the opportunity. But they've apparently somewhat reconciled, at least enough to be in the same room together. Um, whether Jared would allow Christie to elevate to attorney general and whether Jared still has the juice in order to, to block such a nomination is, is to be seen. I think a lot will be, we'll know a lot in January when Chris Christie's book comes out. Um, True. Which, because that will, you know, how he treats Jared in that book, um, what he says about tr- the, the Trump orbit in that book uh, will be a telling indication of whether or not he has, a, he has a shot at becoming attorney general. This game that we play called Two Truths and a Lie, mm-hmm. we try to guess your lie. Yeah. We, each have a, we both try to outsmart you. Yeah. So you're okay. two, two against one. All right, I got three things. All right, go I ahead. I prepared them. All right, go. Number one, I have multiple tattoos okay number two i was born with a different last name than than cats that's my last name now Uh, number three when i was 17 i voted in the 1996 presidential election wow um i'm gonna say number three because you somehow are admitting to committing voter fraud um, and you're exactly the poster child that Republicans have been railing about. So I hope that's true. So I'm going to go say number three, although I think it might be number one. Do but you I'm going to statute of limitations on the. On I don't. I, that's. I don't know. I don't know about that. But if Jeff Sessions is listening, I, I hope it's. I hope it's more than twenty years ago. Whatever it is. I think but Jeff Sessions listens to the podcast. I don't know if Jeff Sessions listens to this podcast. I'm not <laughs> sure. I think if Chris Christie becomes Attorney General, he might listen to this podcast for reasons we probably neither of us wants. But right. Emily, go ahead. Tattoos. So you wait. So you're saying three is false. I'm saying three is false. She's saying one is one false. One is false. Okay. Three is false. I, I did not it. commit voter fraud. You what? I, I did not commit oh, voter okay. fraud. All I have right. two tattoos. Really? What yeah. are they? Um, I have one of my daughter's name on my biceps in the style of the flag that at the top of the New York Times because oh. I was in newspapers at the time, and then I was in radio when my son was born. So I have a radio tower with my son's name on my arm. So when I said multiple tattoos, it's just it's two. Just two. Um, I didn't think, no, I didn't, I, I did not always want a tattoo, but then eventually, and then as soon I did just want a tattoo, and then I had to come up with an idea. <laughs> and, <laughs> so I'm like, it makes did sense. Did you tell your mom? Put, did you tell your parents? Yeah, my mother, the first thing she said was, how much did that cost? Oh, really? <laughs> that was her way of saying she disapproved, I think. If I ever came home with a tattoo at the age of 45, not yeah. that I would, but if I ever did, I would <laughs> totally get disowned by my parents. It wouldn't even be a question. You would get what? Disowned? I disowned. There's Why? No, it's, I think it's the one non-negotiable. You know, it's, no tattoos. You know, it is not uh, not kosher. That's a fable. I don't think it's a kosher thing. I just think they would be horrified. and <laughs> So I will never do that, but that's just my thing. Matt Katz, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Should I get a saltier politics tattoo? You could get a saltier politics tattoo. We have a whole logo. We get a little salt shaker. <laughs> Done. How about this? When, when, when this goes wide, you can get a saltier politics tattoo. Great. Mom and dad, I will not get a saltier politics tattoo. Um, thank you so much for joining us. It was thank a great you. conversation. And uh, well, we'll come back when Chris Christie becomes attorney general uh, yeah. and talk about that in much more, dis- much, much more detail. We'll trade good Chris Christie stories. We both got some. Emily... Go can sit through them and be pained, which a lot of people have been. <laughs> All right, thanks very Thank much. You guys. Appreciate thanks. it. Well, that was a fantastic interview with Matt Katz. Um, we learned a lot about everything from sex columns to immigration and Chris Christie, which will definitely be a follow-up in the coming months. 
But let's get into what's making us salty this week. What's making me salty is exactly what we talked about, immigration, and how the Trump administration is using a lot of rhetoric, calling them illegals because no one's humanity is illegal to dehumanize a group of people who are simply looking and working for a better life. You don't leave your culture. You don't leave everything you know just for funsies and to mess up someone else's life. Uh, and Julie, I think you know firsthand, I don't think your parents left uh, Russia too. Yeah, we, we weren't leaving Russia so we could go and you know have access to Disney World every day. Um, we left Russia for the same reason these refugees are fleeing um, South America, Central America right now, which is that they are actually fleeing for worse reasons than we did. We weren't fleeing for our lives. We were fleeing for the freedom to live our faith um, and our political beliefs the way we wanted to, but they're literally fleeing for their lives. I mean, uh, I was a refugee, but I don't think my parents were worried about my getting raped or killed at the age of six if I were living in Moscow. A lot of these parents are fleeing their countries because they're seriously worried about their parents and their children and themselves being raped or killed. And to dehumanize them this way, to greet them at the border with tens of thousands potential, potentially of American military reading them at the border is a horrible use of our military. Again, these are not the white walkers storming the wall. These are real people who are doing everything by the book, which is they're presenting themselves at the border and asking for asylum, which is exactly what our laws dictate they do. Chances are they will not get asylum, and chances are they will have to go back to either Mexico or to their home countries where they will face persecution and potential death. So uh, let's all take a step back and stop dehumanizing and using them as a political football because that's awful. What's making me salty this week is Mike Pence and his use of a quote-unquote rabbi to uh, mourn the 11 Jewish victims who were killed in the Tree of Life synagogue shooting in Pittsburgh this week. Um, this sort of so-called rabbi, who was actually defrocked by his own ministry, um, is a, a messianic rabbi, which is a, a sect of the Jews for Jesus. And as I said in our salty politics video, you really can't be a Jew for Jesus. If you're a Jew for Jesus, you're a Christian, which is great. You're more than welcome to be one. The Christian religion is a beautiful religion. It's not a judgment on any religion at all, other than to say that maybe there's a better way for Mike Pence to honor Jewish victims than to have somebody who believes that Jews will go to hell if they don't convert to Christianity or don't accept Jesus Christ as the Messiah, which is the exactly the opposite of, of Jewish doctrine, Jewish doctrine believes that the Messiah has not yet arrived. That's what makes Jews different from Christians who believe the Messiah has arrived. So I'm a little salty that Mike Pence couldn't find one real rabbi um, who subscribes to the Jewish faith, any segment of the Jewish faith. Um, it doesn't have to be an Orthodox one, doesn't have to be a Reconstructionist one, but somebody who probably doesn't believe that Jews are going to go to hell because they don't accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. That, that might have been a nice touch from Mike Pence in this time of national reconciliation. I have to say a woman to that one. Yeah, okay. <laughs> All right, everybody, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you again next week on the Saltier Politics Podcast.